3: Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton.
4: Welcome to Buck Sexton with America Now. Quite a day, a lot to discuss. Thank you so much for being here. The budget. Ooh, spicy. Let's talk about the budget. What does it do? What is it not to? First of all, this budget, which the Trump administration put out for 2018, is not really <laughs> it, it is a, a list of policy preferences. Uh, this is not going to pass as is. It shows us it shows us what people uh, what, what Trump and the White House want. But this is a policy statement more than a budget that's going to get through as is. Uh, And, of course, because it cuts funding, specifically it it would cut the Environmental Protection Agency by 31%, the State Department by 28%, HHS, Health and Human Services by 19%, and, yes, even a whole bunch of preferred liberal programs uh, like um, NPR—that's right, the the Corporation for Public Broadcasting— This president's throwing Big Bird out in the cold, everybody. Oh, so sad. It's just really a portion of the budgets in some cases. Uh, It's just a small percentage of meals on wheels. But the political value of making these cuts sound like they're draconian, sound like they're slashes against these, in some cases, uh, good programs, just not programs that necessarily need government money, but government money. But this is upsetting liberals. I mean, they are spitting out their cappuccinos across the country as they read the New York Times today. Uh, Oh, good heavens! Not going to fund the National Endowment for the Arts. What are we coming to in this country? They are showing us what their policy preferences are, just based on the responses here. Uh, You got uh, Nicholas Kristof, one of the columnists, one of the revered columnists for the New York Times, tweeted out today. "Quote: Reading through the Trump budget." I feel as the Romans must have felt in 456 A.D. as the barbarians conquered and ushered in the Dark Ages. Yeah, he's not trying. I don't think he's trying to be funny. By the way, Uh, that's he views this as as just an Uh, outrage—the fact that you may not have the National Endowment for the Arts, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Go down the go down the line. Go down the list of the different programs that would get cut here, and people see things in them that they like and they say well the cut's not that or, or rather it's not that much money and the response to that is always going to be if it doesn't deserve government money then it shouldn't get a dime it's not that it should only get 10 million or 10 billion it should get nothing this is showing us where there is a strong ideological divide by the way the the proposed cuts come from uh, this courtesy of the Washington Post. The EPA, as I said, State Department, EPA gets EPA gets uh, shellacked here. EPA gets gets a rough gets the rough treatment. 31%, State Department 29%, agriculture 21%, labor down 21%, HHS, as I said, commerce, education, housing and urban development, transportation, it, and you just go down the list. What gets more? About 9% for the Defense Department. 7% for DHS, and 6% for veterans. Journalists are still flabbergasted every time Trump does something that he said he would do all along. They're like, oh, what do you mean he's doing this thing? This is insane. He promised to do it through his entire election. I don't know why anybody should be shocked when he follows through on that. Uh, as I said, the cut the cut in funding to NPR, uh, that's the one that really gets some of them upset. Uh, even though it's only 2% i think of the npr budget so the, why are we why are we funding a, why are we funding a radio station this is what i like about trump's budget because yes you could say and by the way a proper context for this would be to point out that 75% of federal government spending completely untouched by this that the congress still holds the power of the purse and that this is just really a suggestion from the administration maybe he'll have congressional buy in but Congress has to actually pass the budget, has to fund the government. Uh, but what this does is it exposes progressives and leftists and their various priorities. And that they think that a cut in funding to the National Endowment for the Arts is ghastly and just unthinkable uh, tells us a lot about what they view as the role of government. Government does not have, should not have a role in taking taxpayer dollars, which We all know, and we should keep this in mind, especially at this time of year, are taken from us under threat of force. Just play this out in your head. You have to pay taxes. You have to file taxes. If you refuse to do that, eventually men with guns will come and take away your freedom. Taxation is not some fun, voluntary thing that we engage in because we love government. It is forced upon us. It is money taken under threat of force. That is what taxation is. And they seem to think that it's an opportunity to have a grab bag of goodies for all kinds of progressive and leftist projects. I take a different view. Apparently so does this administration. And they are, of course, trying to highlight how this will mean, uh, to borrow from Nicholas Kristof, this, com- this is a coming of the dark ages. Um, but I like watching liberals engage in this way. I like to see... What they will defend, this is also true, by the way, of the executive order on immigration, which we will certainly talk about in some detail later on on the show. We'll also get into the latest on wiretapping and surveillance of Trump, the updates on that. We've got a packed show coming. But back to the center of this budget uh, melee right now, the ruckus over the budget. You see, when you force liberals to defend certain things when you force the democrats to expose their priorities to the american people then you finally have an opportunity to begin winning the argument against them i think that even if even if democrats get their way in the end and much of what trump proposes in this 2018 budget does not get kept by the by the republican controlled congress although we'll have to wait and see if that's the case if they get their way in the end it's instructive along the way to see that Democrats really believe that taxpayer dollars should go to things that the government has no business doing in the first place, but that Democrats like. That's part of this. Now, that's a small part of it, but it shows you that, meaning it's a small part of the overall budget. And as I said, we're arguing over 25 percent. We're arguing over what should be on uh, a quarter of the pizza pie and the rest of the pizza pie. We're not even touching. So this is, we're just we're arguing over the toppings right now. Keep that in mind. 20 trillion in debt. And this little slice is where we are waging the current political battle. But this is also and this is where a majority of the cuts come in. Not only does it show the uh, hoity toity liberal bourgeoisie preferences for funding NPR and funding the NEA, then you get into more substantial programs. Then you get into the State Department and the Environmental Protection Agency and the Agriculture Department and Labor Department. And there are some considerable cuts offered up for all of those. Now, this is where we come up against the permanent branch of government, the bureaucracy, and the Trump administration calls this the administrative state. I think they can come up with a scarier name personally. I think they should, but they call it the administrative state. And this budget is more or less a declaration of budgetary war on the administrative state. This is not going to stand anymore. This is not going to continue on as is. These agencies are vast. They have tremendous uh, numbers of employees who are doing duplicative things with other parts of government. I speak from some experience here as a former federal bureaucrat myself. Never mind in the national security side, I'm talking about in the rest of the federal government you have armies of analysts, just so many people showing up collecting very nice paychecks with excellent benefits by the way. Never you're never uh, never going to get rich, but you'll never be poor working for the federal government either. And you're also very unlikely to be fired. Until now, that might be changing. Looks like there could be a reduction in uh, the EPA's payroll, for example, by a few thousand jobs. But do we really want people to be doing climate change research for the EPA when we know that climate change research is so politicized from within the EPA? We're already told that there's a scientific consensus, so, well, why do we have a government agency that's looking at this issue in the first place? I think it's preposterous. There's a lot of—they say we want clean water? Fine. Clean water sounds good to me. Let's look at who's really making the water clean. Let's look at what is necessary. We are always led to believe—and this is where the war on the administrative state comes to a head—we are led to believe that the size of the government right now is the perfect size until tomorrow, when it has to get bigger. It can never get smaller, not without howls of outrage from the liberal left. It's never allowed to contract. And departments that didn't even exist in living memory are now edifices that cannot be touched by the likes of the president or the Congress. They cannot be in any way pared back or even abolished. That would be unthinkable. That would be, to borrow from our... New York Times columnist here, barbarians at the gate. Oh, good heavens, what are we ever going to do with a 30% cut in the Environmental Protection Agency? The State Department, a place that I know a bit, didn't work there, but I I know state people. Spent a lot of time in D.C., and you you come across them frequently. Uh, Let me say that the State Department has plenty of folks out there. Who do good work and are very smart and are and are truly career civil servants. I would estimate that's about twenty to thirty percent maximum, maximum of the State Department workforce. That's what I would say. Once you add in those who are just showing up, mailing it in, and those who are maybe trying hard but are duplicative of other efforts elsewhere in the in the government, you could at least cut that place in half. I'm not kidding. You speak to friends of mine on the national security side even, without naming any specific three-letter agencies, and they'll tell you, and they're not not—they're not really kidding. They're just making up the numbers, but they'll say that 90 percent of the work is done by 10, maybe 20 percent of the people. Well, if that's so true, no one's, by the way, suggesting uh, right now that the EPA be completely abolished. No one's suggesting the State Department be completely abolished, but cuts in the State Department, cuts in the EPA— Uh, we're told these will be catastrophic. Why? What were we spending 10 years ago? What were we spending at these agencies? Where were we spending the money before we were spending any of it? Now, I do think there's a fair point to make here about defense spending as well, because this gets rid of sequestration, adds the 50 billion, 50 plus billion back into the defense budget. And I'd like to see more specifics, and I'm sure this is what the Folks who work on the Armed Services Committee on the Hill, this is what they deal with. But I'd like to see some specifics on the appropriations process for the Pentagon and how that will be reformed so that these dollars are being wisely spent. Because, yes, you can always spend more on the military, but how are we spending money that we already spend is, is a worthwhile place to look. Um, and DHS, of course, that's borders, there's border security that's a part of this. But ultimately— And we can get more into the border security aspect and the immigration parts of this in a little bit. But ultimately, this is a declaration of war on the administrative state by the Trump administration. And it is also a declaration of priorities that not just Trump, but one would think the Republican Party that has been selling us for years on less spending, that has been selling us for years on doing something about the deficit and the debt. Can they take these actions? Maybe it's fair to say that if they show action on this one-quarter slice of the overall spending pie, if they show action and the government doesn't crumble and we don't have dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, ghostbusters, then we can have the political will to deal with the entitlement crisis that faces us because we're spending too much money there, but one step at a time. Let's see if they can get the Republicans to work together to march in the same direction and show us that the government does not have to be this big. The government does not have to get as much money, and we can establish priorities that differ from eight years of a far-left progressive administration under Barack Obama. So the budget is a fascinating debate, especially when you think about the fact that this is more or less squabbling over a spreadsheet and a lot of numbers. 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. What do you think about the spending, my friends? What do you think about the debt? That and much more to discuss right after this break. Mick Mulvaney, budget director. Mick Mulvaney, OMB, the green eyeshade guy. The guy who's looking at all these numbers and trying to make it work. He has been getting pushed, of course, on how Republicans are so mean. Why are you so mean? Why do you hate Big Bird? Why are you making Big Bird go away? And what about Well, let's Hello everybody. Let's talk about uh, radio and NPR this weekend. How are you doing? They're going to cut 2% of our funding. I think it means that American civilization's coming to an end. I think we'll be okay without NPR. I think we'll be okay without Big Bird and they'll be okay because they only get a tiny percentage or at least in the case of uh NPR, I know they get a tiny percentage of their budget from uh, from the taxpayer anyway. But these are just they're emotional issues. They're emotionalizing the debate because they don't want to make it about numbers or government priorities, more importantly. It's not about whether the government should give you a little money if the government should give you no money. It's very straightforward. Now, Mulvaney is out there, and he's having to deal with all this stuff, and they're pushing him on the lack of compassion. Play clip 58
0: you were talking about the steel worker in Ohio and the coal miner in Pennsylvania and and so on. Uh, But those workers may have an elderly mother who depends on uh, the Meals on Wheels program, who who may have kids in Head Start. And yesterday or the day before, you described this as a hard power budget, but is it also a hard-hearted,
4: Budget.
2: No, I don't think so. I, in fact, I think, it's, I think it's probably one of the most compassionate things we can do
4: to actually... T- you, you're, 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 you're only focusing on half of the equation, right? You're focusing on recipients of the money. We're trying to focus on both the recipients of the money and the folks who give us the money in the first place. And I think it's fairly compassionate to go to them and say, look, we're not going to ask you for your hard-earned money anymore. Single mom of two in Detroit. Okay, Give us your money. We're not going to do that anymore. He's saying, what about the taxpayer? What about—you gar- can always make a case, you know, why don't we just have free food? What, do you want to take food out of the mouths of children? Why don't we just make food free? If if it's all about the emotional impact of an argument that you can make, not about the economic and budgetary realities, where does this end? But just as a side note here, hat, tick, hat, hat tip um, uh, Molly Hemingway uh, of The Federalist, she pointed this out on this on Twitter— Uh, This is a quote from a piece that she excerpted. Um, Any cuts in the federal workforce resulting from the spending decreases, Mulvaney said, will be determined by agency heads with more discretion than is typical for an agency. But when asked for numbers and the possible impact on the Washington, D.C. economy, the head of the Office of Management and Budget told the reporter, quote, the president represents the District of Columbia, But the president also represents the rest of America, so we did not write this budget with an eye toward the value of your condo, end quote. Ouch. Ooh. You mean that the federal civil servants are supposed to serve and that it's not all about how comfortable things may or may not be for people at different agencies? There should not be a single person in the federal government who is there because— it's, you know, they'll be safe and warm and fed by the taxpayer. You know, that's not the way it should be, I think, borrowing from in there. Um, that shouldn't be the way that, it, that they go. Um, it should be that they're there to serve, and if they, for some reason, are no longer necessary for government priorities, they would go off into the normal private sector economy and get a job. Talking about the federal bureaucracy now. Yeah, there are some places that are never going to have to work. You know, we we need an FBI for sure. You know, there are a lot of departments that no one's even talking about touching. Some departments are going to get more money. But we're really to believe that the EPA, it's at the perfect level of funding right now. And if you cut it 20 or 30 percent even, that we're just going to have toxic waste running through the streets. The scare tactics aren't working, are they? All right, we've got a lot more coming up, including the executive order and what the progressives are doing to overturn Trump more coming. Buck
3: Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on.
4: All right, team. Welcome back. We are joined by Republican Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama. Congressman, thank you for giving us some time. My pleasure. Uh, we got a, a, there's obviously a, a lot to talk about, a lot going on. Let's just start first with the budget. Uh, what did you think of what the White House put out today? I've seen it both described as uh, what is it? The America First is what's on the fr- it's on the first page, and people are saying that it's it's a leaner, meaner federal government. What say you?
5: Well, there's going to be a lot of debate about the details uh, what gets increased and by how much and what gets cut and by how much but overall the general principle is is we're going to do a better job of living within our means than we have in past years and um, director of OMB uh, Mick Mulvaney in my opinion did a great job of, of making sure that the overall theme of if they're going to be increases there also have to be matching cuts uh, is a part of this budget
4: now I've seen that there are some some of your colleagues on the Democrat side are already saying that the part of this proposed budget that deals specifically with uh, border security also could lay out money to start building a wall. And, And I read today that Democrats, some Democrats, at least, are saying that they would even force a government shutdown over just that one little part. Is that tough talk? Could you even see that? Is that is that a foreseeable scenario?
5: It is a foreseeable uh, scenario. The Democrats are confident that when they shut down the government, the Republicans will get blamed for it. It reminds me of 2013 when the Republicans passed in the House. We passed a funding bill before the shutdown occurred that gave the Democrats everything they wanted except for a couple items. And one was uh, healthcare.gov is not ready for prime time. Let's delay that. And number two was, If Obamacare is such a good thing, then the White House employees ought to be subject to it, just like the House of Representatives and the United States Senate employees are subject to it. And the government was shut down over those trivial uh, two matters because the Democrats knew that the media would be on their side. So even though the Democrats are shutting down the government in 2017, if that's their game plan, uh, they feel quite confident with the bias in the news media that the Republicans will bear the blame. And suffer the consequences at the next election.
4: Well, you answered my follow-on question already, which is great. But just to highlight it for everybody here, I was going to say, how how is it that Republicans are blamed for shutting it down when they shut it down, or would be blamed, and then Democrats uh, would be in a situation where they could shut it down, and Republicans would be blamed again? Of course, it's the media and the framing of the situation, as Congressman Brooks said. Uh, but on the issue of the wall. It, hasn't Congress voted before to fund building a wall? How are the Democrats picking this as the hill that they will fight on till the very end?
5: Well, it's one thing to have an authorization to construct a wall. It's another thing to actually have money to be spent on building the border security wall. And the Democrats uh, recognize that legislation has been approved that permits the president to build a wall uh, but there is not legislation right now, at least not that I'm aware of, that actually allocates the resources to that program of wall building.
4: So that, that is something then that you expect perhaps this administration can get can get started if they were to put the funding aside. Um, I, I, would, I would just want to know if there's anywhere in this that you see that Republicans, uh, either in the House or the Senate, may get a bit squeamish. Based on this budget today, can you see some – if not defections, at least some prevaricating, some some waffling, some I don't know if I want to do this from the GOP side of things.
5: Well, I'm quite confident that the president's proposal will not be what is enacted into law. It's a starting point. It's been that way with uh, all, if not all, uh, presidents in the past. Uh, certainly the president's desires, uh, they, they perform a construct from which everything else flows, and I think you'll see that in this instance too, that's the base uh, budget, that what the president has given us, that uh, we're going to consider and then move on from there. And I suspect that the president will get a lot of what he wants, but he won't get everything. Uh, bear in mind, though, that we're still either going to need some Democrats in the Senate to concur, or we're going to need enough senators with the intellect and the backbone to ex- exercise the power of the majority and flat-out run over. Uh, the Democrats, as they could do with the repeal of Obamacare, if they wanted to.
4: Well, that's a, that's. But I've a,
5: seen nothing. I've seen nothing in the in in the past six years, or in particular the past two years, uh, with the Republicans in control of the Senate. That suggests to me that the Republican Senate is committed to achieving the goals that were pledged during the campaigns.
4: We're talking to Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, Congressman. You touched on another critical issue there. We've been told, we being, I think, the American people, at least every Republican that I know that's listening, uh, for weeks now that it's that it's reconciliation is not enough. And that's why there's not a full repeal of Obamacare. It seems to me you were just saying a second ago, you're, you're not buying that.
5: No, I'm not. Uh, if there are 50 senators plus the vice president who can break the tie out of the 52 Republicans that we have in the United States Senate who say we're going to fight for America, nothing's going to stand in our way, and we're going to repeal Obamacare, that 50 plus the tie-breaking vote by the vice president can achieve every single goal that we want to achieve. Bear in mind that it's the majority of the Senate that is empowering 41 Democrats, a minority in the Senate, to block legislation. And just as that majority has empowered through a rule uh, the Democrats to block our goals, uh, that majority, 50 plus one, can change the rules and Deny that minority of 41 senators the power to block us at every front.
4: Senator Harry Reid changed the rules about judges. We saw that happen. So it seems to me that, given the the mandate that the Trump administration believes it has from the American people to get rid of Obamacare, they could do the same. Let me ask you about. Let me let me add just one thing. Sure, sure.
5: You brought up a clear and bright distinction. Democrats were committed to their belief system, so they did what they believed needed to be done in order to achieve their political goals that they thought were in the best interest of the country. I would love to see 51 senators feel the same way as Harry Reid and the Democrats did when they exercised the nuclear option with respect to uh, all judicial appointments short of the Supreme Court justices and cabinet appointments.
4: Yeah, That's and we're what seeing. He we're-
5: did to someone in, on the Republican side like Harry Reid and the Democrats were on the Democrat side just a few short years ago. And we're
4: seeing some of the federal judges that were put through under Obama's tenure as the last line of defense for progressive ideology when they don't like legislation or executive actions that they see. Uh, But I want to ask you, if if I were a constituent, uh, and I know you represent the great state of Alabama, if I were a constituent and I said, Congressman uh, Congressman Brooks, it's all well and good that President Trump is cutting back on the bureaucracy and uh, having this— Moment of honesty about the administrative state, but this is only twenty-five. Even if he did get through, and you're right, it's not going to be what the White House suggests the end budget. But even if a lot of it did go through, we are arguing, we're sort of uh, quibbling over a very small slice of the overall pie—about twenty-five to thirty percent of federal spending. That's uh, correct. So, what what are we to make of that? I mean, is this a first step toward maybe the political realities needed for entitlement reform, or is this just a separate issue in your mind?
5: Well, they're, they're separate, but they're related. We have discretionary spending, which is in the neighborhood of $1.1 trillion. Then we have entitlement and in interest on the debt spending that's in the neighborhood of 2.6, 2700000000000 depending on what year you look at and, and who you uh, cite as your source. And so the vast majority of the money being spent by the federal government is in entitlements, uh, wealth, welfare programs, wealth transfer programs, and then the uh, two earned entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. Uh, We have to address the entitlement program. Social Security and Medicare, in my opinion, we need to raise the age at which new, younger people can uh, start receiving those benefits. That will make them uh, more solvent. Uh, Right now, Social Security disability is scheduled to be insolvent at the current pace somewhere around 2023. Uh, Medicare is expected to be insolvent sometime in the late 2020s. And then Social Security is expected to follow up with their insolvency sometime in the 2030s. But if we raise the age at which longer-living people can restart receiving uh, Social Security benefits, grandfathering in everybody who's already depended on those, who have made their retirement plans based on those things, uh, then we can fix a big part of the entitlement problem, uh, at least on the Social Security and Medicare side. Then there are 87 wealth transfer programs. I call them welfare programs that cost us $800 billion a year.
4: There will be 88
5: and even more money spent if uh, the House – uh, leadership uh, health care welfare plan uh, passes, uh, but we need to address the entitlement uh, spending at the welfare level, those 87 that cost roughly $800 billion a year, and start cutting into those if, and it's a big if, America is going to avoid a debilitating insolvency and bankruptcy that most every educated economic guru is warning us is going to happen in the absence of acting better than we have been in the past. And that's why Mick Mulvaney, Director of Office uh, of Management and Budget, uh, what he proposed today and and submitted on behalf of the White House uh, to the Congress today is very important at the big picture level because it's it's sending a clear message. If you're going to increase spending over here, you've got to cut spending over there, which is what family budgets have to do, businesses have to do, and it's the kind of decision-making we should embark on. And we can have spirited debate of what's going to be increased and by how much or what's going to be cut and by how much. But we have to have that debate if we're going to be financially responsible and protect the America that took two centuries of our ancestors to build.
4: Congressman Brooks, thank you very much for joining the program. We appreciate your time.
5: My pleasure. Have a good evening.
4: Phones are open 844-900-2825. Team Buck, we will be right back. So, team, the budget has obviously dominated the headlines today, but I also want to talk and we'll probably be returning to it here and there. Uh, through the rest of the show. And actually, we've got a call up on it right now. Tim in Mississippi on WBUV. I think you want to talk budget, so let's do it. What's up?
0: Yeah, hello, Buck. Thank you. Listen, this is a little in the weeds. I'm going to try to simplify it down as much as I can. Um, Congressman Brooks, first of all, though, <laughs> we we the Congress took the time to write a bill, pass a bill to authorize something, and now we've got to go back and find the money. Does that happen in real-world business? No, it doesn't happen at all, but that's an aside. The, the whole issue with budgeting, I've been a CPA for 40 years, and in every administration in my lifetime, at least since I was old enough to, to pay attention, um, every time there is a budget cut talked about, because you use zero or because you use baseline budgeting, you know, it, on your home budget. If you're going to cut your budget, wouldn't you anticipate that next year you're going to budget and spend less than you did for whatever it is than you did this year? Well, of course you would, and that's how it works in business, too. But by using baseline budgeting, when when they cut $50 million out of an agency, okay, the way the baseline is built is basically we start with what we spent this year, and then they inflate it, not with specific items but by a percentage okay and so when they talk about cutting 50 million dollars out of the budget that 50 million dollars doesn't mean you're going to spend 50 million less next year than you did this year that means that over the next 10 years you're going to spend 50 million dollars less than was originally projected with some inflation factor in there
4: right it's a decrease in the rate of increase in the spending
0: exactly so you're not cutting a damn thing All you're doing is slowing the rate of growth. We've got a, our GDP is about 18 a little over 18 trillion dollars. Okay, 20 trillion dollars in debt. When a country gets to 120 percent in that ratio, they're done. At least unless you know we're going to make a comeback like no other country in in the history of man has has done. Now, I'll admit I have not had a chance to look at, at at President Trump's budget proposal. I'm hoping. That it's a business like a CEO like budget, where he says, "Okay, we spent this this year. We're cutting it by 50 million or 20 million or whatever the number happens to be." Even if he did, though, the um, I don't know what the best way to have it, the folks in Congress in the bizarro world of Washington. There, you you mark my words. Even if Trump wins on this. In, in the 25 percent of the discretionary spending, we will spend more next year than we spent this year. Oh, yeah.
4: No, the, the, this is what I was saying. I mean, this is the ultimate. And I thank you, uh, Tim, for calling from Mississippi. Appreciate it. And uh, lending some expertise as a CPA. Everybody wants stuff. Nobody wants to pay for it. That's the bipartisan political reality of this entire discussion over the budget and the debt meaning that we, it's so much more politically palatable. It's more exciting to people. You'll get more votes. You'll do better if you figure out what your constituency or different constituencies that are on your side of the aisle want and spend the money there. Right? Giving out goodies is much more effective politics, unfortunately, especially considering we're already $20 trillion in debt. And there is a point at which, by the way, and it might come depending on whose projections you look at, As interest rates rise, and I I think there may be a a jolt in the market that will happen from – and I mean all the – employment market, stock market, everything – when there's a recognition that just paying interest on the debt is going to be eating up a larger and larger share because then that becomes a monster that nobody can ignore. Just paying interest on the debt becomes its own problem, uh, and that that takes up a larger and larger uh, part of our economic output year in and year out. But nobody wants to deal with this. Right. I mean, you had Congressman Brooks before saying, well, we need to raise the age of uh, retirement. We need to raise the age for these programs that people. Yes, they are. You're paying into them. But the other part of this that nobody wants to bring up, especially the seniors are a large voting, a large voting block for both Democrats and Republicans. Nobody wants to upset senior seniors have made. Uh, choices about their future based upon promises from the government but the reality is that for a lot of people whatever they've paid into medicare over the course of their uh, lifetime will be much less than what they take out of the program that's a problem from just a, a pure dollars and cents perspective which is why raising the age of eligibility for medicare is one way of dealing with this you'll also probably need means testing so that somebody who reaches a certain threshold will either have less of their Medicare benefit, but then you start to then you'll people will say, well, then why am I paying into this in the first place, right? If if there's going to be means testing for it, why why are you taking this out of my paycheck? Uh, ultimately, as I said, nobody, everybody wants stuff. Nobody wants to pay for it. I know that's not true of each individual, but that's the general sentiment when it comes to government spending and the debt and the deficit and everything else that we see playing out here with the budget. You're seeing a set of priorities. Priorities from the Trump administration, immigration enforcement, uh, Department of Homeland Security, Defense Department veterans. Those are all getting more money, and you see what would get less money. Now, the, the problem you'll see playing out is that Republican members of Congress, are, they're going to want their stuff. They're going to be thinking—I was reading today about—I uh, think it was a, a Republican, uh, Republican— member of Congress who was upset about the cut in funding for Lake Erie. It was like hundreds of millions of dollars for Lake Erie to preserve it or something like that. I don't know. Look, I'm not a Lake Erie expert. I've never even been to Lake Erie. I'm not trying to pick on Lake Erie, but the Lake Erie effect is going to be in play for all these different members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. You're going to see this because congressmen want their stuff for their district and senators want their stuff for their states. And you have to be willing to make hard choices and you have to be forward uh, forward-thinking and responsible about this stuff, or eventually you're going to run out of runway. And we're getting closer. We're at $20 trillion. Wasn't that long ago that people would have said $20 trillion, That's the point of no return, isn't it? Well, now you're talking about, I mean, the Obama administration, you want to talk about budgets. The last budget that Obama put out, and granted, look, the budget's really in the hands of Congress, not the president, but it shows you the party priorities. last budget that Obama put out, I think it would have raised the debt Six to six or seven trillion dollars over the next ten years. That's when we were already at twenty. So, at what point is it too much? And I I always like to go back to basic thought experiments here. If government spending can be anything, if it does, if the debt doesn't really matter, then why not just have a fantastic stimulus program where every American gets a bank account with a hundred thousand dollars in it? Well, we have the opposite of that because we have sixty thousand dollars that have been taken. From all of us in the form of the debt of each individual currently owed under the federal government's overall debt. So it is crazy stuff we were dealing with, my friends. We got to talk about the executive order and the judge overturning it, the uh, travel ban, that and more coming up next hour. Stay with me.
3: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles, shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in. 844-900-BUCK. That's
4: 844-900-2825. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for being here in the Freedom Hub. We've got Kim Strassel on the line. She is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. She's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and a member of the Journal's editorial board. Great to have you, Kim. Thanks for coming back. Hey, Buck. Good to be here. So I read your piece, and it is uh, a very... Reasoned and reasonable approach to what has become a very acrimonious debate among Republicans on the health care bill. The title of your piece is "Let's Make a Conservative Deal." Uh, how do you think that? Tell everybody how do you think that happens, given where we're starting now with what is being called Obamacare 2.0, Ryan Care, Obamacare Lite—all these cute, fun names. How do we get to a conservative deal on health care with this Republican Congress?
6: I think everyone has forgotten, Buck, is that this is how the legislative sausage is actually made. We lived through eight years of an Obama administration that was all about ruling by executive fiat, telling people what to do, acrimony obstruction. And people have forgotten that the way you actually get a bill to a president's desk is that you negotiate. And people go out, they make comments saying that they can't support a bill. It's because they're trying to negotiate some changes to it. And that's, in fact, what we see happening at the moment. You have the Speaker in the White House. They have confirmed that they're working on a manager's amendment, which would, change or fix some of the aspects of the bill. to pl-
4: Did we just lose Kim? I can't hear her. Where did Kim go? Hello? Should, oh, Kim, you? sorry. You're yes, back. Sorry. Yeah, we, you dropped off for a second. We were all so all sad. Right. Thank you for coming wow. back. All right, there How'd you go. how
6: happened? I don't uh, know.
4: <laughs> I blame Soros. Go ahead.
6: Yes, it probably is, uh, the NSA. But anyway, I mean, you have all of these different players who are, in fact, negotiating in earnest. You have Speaker Paul Ryan driving this with a series of deadlines, and the goal is to get everybody to yes, and I don't think that there is any reason to believe so far that you can't get to
4: yes. Now, I know you're not, I mean, obviously you're not Paul Ryan, and you're not a member of Congress who has already put there, who, who is supporting, is putting it forward, but I, I wanted to just push to you some of the objections that, that I think are certainly fair objections, and you're saying that this is what will get worked out. This is the this is not supposed to be perfect. It's a starting point for negotiations. But given that we've been told for years there have been all these repeals that the Republicans said they wanted to pass, you know, the repeal uh, votes that were taken in the, in the past, uh, why not start with a very conservative bill? Why not start with a full-out repeal into place and then force people to bring it more to the center for passage? You know what I mean? Can, is, is there any tactical sense to you from a, a real a realist perspective with taking this approach instead of well let's just give the republican base what we've been saying we'll give them and then if we have to moderate to get it through at the end we will it seems like they're moderating and telling us that'll get more conservative
6: that might well have been the better strategy from the start buck and that might have been a mistake on paul ryan and mitch mcconnell and the white house's part because of course they're doing it from the other direction they crafted this bill as a way to retain moderates in the senate and now we're having to backtrack some and make some fixes. That being said, it doesn't seem at all impossible that they can get the bill back more to some fixes. For instance, uh, when the Medicaid expansion stops right now in the bill it's supposed to not end until 2020, can you move those dates up a couple of years? Uh, Can you get rid of a few more of the mandates through the different process that they're using at the moment? This is all possible. But I think the important point is here is that no one is saying that they're not going to negotiate, Uh, and it looks as though this is where it's headed. And if you do, in fact, end up getting a bill that a significant proportion of House conservatives support and pass through the House then this is reality because there's going to be just a handful of Republicans in the Senate who uh, may be considered obstructionists. And that point, the president, the White House, and everyone else has a lot of pressure to bring to bear on them to get with the rest of the reform program.
4: There's been uh, there have been a few out there, Kim, who have been leveling the charge, um, and I'm not sure I've heard specific names, but they've just been putting it out there that. Some Republicans maybe are getting a little, a little wishy-washy, and maybe a little, a little weak on this one. Maybe the, the spines need to be stiffened a bit here when it comes to Obamacare and its repeal. Do you think there are some Republicans who just don't really believe that repeal and replace is the right option, or is it more just a short-term "I want to get reelected" symptom that we're we're seeing them go through?
6: it's probably more the latter than the former but we do need to worry about weak spines look everyone in the republican caucus needs to understand that this is not negotiable this is a binary proposition at the moment you either repeal in the place and you use it do it with this vehicle that the house has put forward it can be modified it can be changed but this is your best shot of doing it or you don't and you take the consequences of the fallout from obamacare and Republicans who tell themselves that, oh, somehow this will get uh, put on Democrats and we'll be able to, to blame it on them, that's not what will happen. Republicans have campaigned for six years on repeal and replace. If they fail to do it now, they will face the consequences at the election booth in, in two years' time. So I think that people understand it needs to be done, or are there folks that need it focused for next. them that this is the way to do it. Yeah, definitely.
4: And Kim, I wanted to get your take cuz this is what we're going to be talking about next on the uh the overturn or the stay, really it's not an overturn, the stay on the executive order from this judge in Hawaii. I, I read his decision and I was just like, uh, this is mind-boggling. That this is this now passes for legal reasoning in a federal court in the United States.
6: It's appalling uh look the the Trump administration came back with a redone order The first one let's all admit it was not the best considered one, not just in terms of what it laid out as law, but in terms of the legal reasoning it offered in front of the court. The second time around, they did a far better job. The president has enormous ability under the 1950s Immigration Act to decide what class or classes of immigrants are not allowed into the country under national security priorities. The idea that this judge came up with a wacky idea for why he was going to strike this down, put it on hold, uh, there's just no legal basis for it.
4: Kim Strassel is a columnist at The Wall Street Journal. You can read her latest at uh, WSJ.com, and she's also the author of The Intimidation Game, a fantastic book available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Kim, always great to have you hang out with us. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Buck. Uh, team phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. All right, lines are lit. Let's do it, Team Buck. We've got Bill in Pennsylvania, WRAK. What's up, Bill?
0: Yeah, I have two questions for you. that uh, I've never been able to find the answer to whether it's online or anywhere else first one has to do with the, uh, the EPA whose budget is being cut, as I understand from the, uh, the budget proposal today. Uh, when they fine an agency or a person, do they get the money? Um, my, who gets the money for the fines? Because my fear there is that the, AP, the EPA will just make up its budget cuts by increasing fines.
4: Uh, My my assumption would be, and I need to check this, and I'll have uh, producer Amy take a look at this in a second. My assumption would be that it goes to the Treasury Department, just like when you write, you know, when you have to write a check to the IRS, it goes to the Treasury Department. Um, Obviously, there are some places where federal agencies, specifically federal law enforcement agencies, uh, through uh, forfeiture proceedings. Will benefit. And people have pointed to this and said, this is really bad. Uh, the specific agency will benefit from forfeiture proceedings. And there have been some very uh, unsavory a- arrangements uh, between even local law enforcement and federal law enforcement that pushes with these civil asset forfeiture uh, claims that they do. So no one's ever convicted of a crime, but there, there are proceeds taken by the government from individuals really on suspicion. And then you have to try to fight to get it back. And it's very hard to do. Uh, they've been trying to change that recently, so I know there are some places where there is an incentive for uh, a federal agency, in this case law enforcement, to take your stuff, and that's by the way should never be the case. I would assume with the EPA that if you're paying a fine, it probably goes to Treasury, but there may be some ways that is that yeah. Am I correct? I I am correct on that. So that's I'm I'm happy that I'm correct, but uh, I also agree with you that this is something to pay attention to. It goes to
0: the general fund. Yes. The second question is in terms of you were talking about. Uh, Paying interest on the national debt uh, always wondered me. Who exactly do we pay interest to?
4: Well, we're, we, you're paying back the obligation. I mean, the United States government is running up obligations all over the world, right? So, I we, mean, we, running up obligations rather all the time, and people owe can own those obligations in the form of Treasury securities all over the world, and so when we're paying back. The debt, uh, we people will make this point. Paul Krugman will say, "Oh, we're we're paying it back to ourselves." Well, it's a question of of uh, overall. It's a question of solvency. So, if you run up uh, too much in debt, if the government spends more money than it takes in, right? If we want to take this to a very simple level, and it keeps doing that year in and year out, it can issue it can issue treasury bonds, which is what it does. So, this is a way to raise money. If people don't believe that those are worth anything, then the whole system begins to collapse and come down. If people don't believe that they will actually get paid back or that their money will not be worth the same amount when they're paid back, then they're not going to view uh, treasuries as, as the safe haven that they currently are. Now, keep in mind, treasuries don't pay very much at all right now. I don't know what their rate is. I'm not, right. a, I'm not a markets or a finance guy, but it's, I know it's incredibly low. Uh, it's probably around 1%, maybe less than. Amy, give me what the treasuries are paying right now. Now I sound like one of these guys with the rolled up sleeves and the tie askew on CNBC, like, "Hey, what's going on with the markets?" You know, hey, you know the the sort of gruff uh, Wall Street trader. But um, yeah, I, I, that's um, did I answer your question? I kind of got a little. I'm running around. I know, but
0: oh, uh, sort of. It sounds like the interest goes back to me as the investor in the bond, and then if there's no money to pay me, then my bond's worthless.
4: Yeah, if you don't believe that the federal government's going to pay its obligations or that there's even the possibility of default, that's going to affect the government's ability to uh, get money by by selling treasuries, but which is just a way of selling debts in, into the future, right? This is what they this is what they do. So right. I mean it's an obviously it's an incredibly complicated right. system, but but right. at, at some point the debt the, the basics of this are at some point the debt becomes so high that nobody be- that that they believe at the pressure on spending and also the ability of the government to pay back its obligations i mean ultimately you run into this it's a confidence thing because already we're 20 trillion in debt what happens at 30 trillion what happens at 50 trillion uh, you start to ask these questions and uh, where it really starts to be a problem is that you're no longer able to raise the money year in and year out as a government for your expenditures because you're going to have to pay back people that you've already borrowed money from you know is, is you see what i'm saying so this is that's the in the long run how okay. how it plays out, and that's why uh, interest rates rising is something to keep an eye on, uh, because right now, well, and I'm going to get into a whole discussion of monetary policy, but that's that's what I got for you on this one, Bill in Pennsylvania. Thank you for calling in, sir. Uh, Lori in New Jersey, who actually knows quite a bit about securities in Wall Street. Lori, great to have you.
7: Yo, Buck, love you as usual.
4: Thank you so and much. Now, by the I- way, do you want to take a stab at the gentleman was asking about uh, paying well, back I was the debt? Just gonna- Go for it, Lori. I was La- going to
7: say, uh, that, is, that is not what I called about, but now I, need, I, I like have so many tens of thousands of things I want to say. But La- I'm, La- I'm La- Lori's, like-
4: Lori's original squad, Team Buck, so I know Lori. She's calling her from New Jersey. Lori, just <laughs> uh, just to explain. Give you us know, a, layman, a layperson <laughs> explanation of what we're paying back, and we're paying back interest on the debt.
7: Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I would recommend to every single person in your audience, please, first of all, before you engage in any discussion or even thought about monetary policy, which is really, really mind-bending, yeah. because it's totally counterintuitive, please read The Creature from Jekyll Island. Please read it.
4: The creation of the we, Fed. We,
7: yes, because the answer is that's who you're paying. That is who the United States pays its interest to. When we say, who is the United States paying interest to, what we really mean is, who are we freaking – refrain from using unacceptable four-letter words. Thank you. Who who are we, innocent U.S. citizens, paying that interest to? We're not paying it to us. It's not like you took an advance on your – like I I did this once a long time ago. I borrowed from my uh, 401K, my own 401K for down payment on a property. And that was great because the, pay- the repayments that then came out of my check, I was paying interest to myself. But that's not what's happening when we, re- we, the United States, repay our debt. We are paying the Fed. And please read The Creature from Jekyll Island to understand who the Fed really is. And with that, I'll get off my soapbox because it does sound like black ho- helicopters. <laughs> But but you need to read it to understand it.
4: And uh, yes, you were. You want to talk about something else as well, from what I see on the call screen. What was that?
7: Uh, I did. I did. I did. And <clears throat> so there was the, the Congressman Brooks, followed by Kim, whose last name I can't remember. Strassel, Wall Street
4: Journal. She's brilliant. Go ahead.
7: Yeah, well, right. And I, yeah, and I've read many. And the one fed into the other, and into my what I have to say. You. We have to ask ourselves as. Uh, I, I consider myself what I call a constitutarian uh, We have to ask ourselves why can't our elected republican representatives because that's what i'm left with at the voting booth, like many of us are we have to uh, we have to vote for the people with the r s after their names we can't vote for the d s Why is it though that that our the people with the r s after their names cannot subscribe apparently? to Republican small-r principles, as articulated in the platform of the party, for example. They simply can't. Congressman Brooks, I had to sit through uh, last week, uh, basically a lecture from Senator Pat Toomey about how, oh, we can't possibly uh, just repeal Obamacare because that's not how it was passed. You have to understand, you quote-unquote, you stupid fools, that, that some of Obamacare was passed with 60 votes in the Senate, and we can't we can't get rid of that with a, with simple right. I know money. this is what we've
4: been talking about. That's why I talked to Mo Brooks about this. He says that's balderdash.
7: He did, he did. So then you have to ask yourself: So why is it? Why is it, Buck, that Republicans are, after their names, simply cannot now when we really have the advantage? Why is it that they can't? Do what they promised they would do, and I'm serious. I'm not just asking this as a throwaway question. We have to ask ourselves, why aren't they doing?
4: Because this? they don't want to, which is what I was getting at with Kim right. before, and they don't right. want to because ultimately, exactly. ultimately, I think there are. And Laurie uh, from New Jersey, big hog, and thank you for calling in. Uh, ultimately, the Republicans, uh, some of some of the Republicans, I believe, like parts of Obamacare. Which is why you've seen some parts of it just taken uh, wholesale, uh, the pre-existing conditions component, the on your parents insurance until you are 26 component, uh, leaving the federal government in charge of deciding what is an acceptable health care plan and what is not, i.e. mandates for certain levels of coverage. I think there are Republicans who like it. They don't want it to go away. And this is why my question to Kim, and I think it's one that people should ask much more frequently. I haven't heard anyone else ask it. If the argument is that this is a starting place for negotiations, someone explain this to me. If you are Paul Ryan and you are a conservative and you believe in limited government and you believe that Obamacare was an unconstitutional legal atrocity, which is what the Republicans were telling us. Four years. If that is in fact your contention, if you have the courage of your convictions, if you really believe this, but you want to deal with the realities of getting things passed and getting the president to sign it when it's on his desk, okay. Why would you not take the bill in its most conservative form and then try to defend that going forward? Why put out there as a first offering something? That anybody who's been paying attention is going to say, oh, that's not what you promised. And anybody who claims to be limited government and for conservatism in general, especially as it applies to health care and Obamacare, is going to say this just doesn't work. This isn't repeal and replace. Why not come up with the most conservative first offer if this is going to turn into negotiation. The only reason I can think of to put out a sort of moderate, wishy-washy version and say, oh, it's about reconciliation and everything else, is because ultimately there are enough Republicans that want to say that they hate Obamacare, but there are actually plenty of parts of Obamacare that not only are they fine with, no matter what happens, they want to keep.
3: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder-to-shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825.
4: Speaking of uh, legal atrocities, I was talking before about Obamacare and what the Republicans have been saying about Obamacare for years now. But if we really want a legal atrocity, all you have to do is look at the... Hawaii uh, the federal judge in Hawaii uh, ruling that the Trump executive order on immigration is unconstitutional. This is I mean look, the Trump administration and I said at the beginning there were some problems here. People that already have visas shouldn't be turned away because th- that they have an un- understand now there's the, there's a difference by the way between shouldn't be and can't be legally. Uh, If you're a visa, I believe it even says on the visa, you know, this doesn't guarantee entry, just FYI. Like if you get a visa and then all of a sudden there is a, you know, a a background hit on you that comes up in one of the systems that DHS or any of the agencies use to monitor possible terrorist activity. It's not like you can show up at, uh, you know, Chicago O'Hare or JFK or any of the major airports be like, well, excuse me, I've. I've got a visa. You're going to let me into the country? Eh, it's not how it works, and I, I'm pretty sure it even says on the visa, either the visa application or the visa itself, even you, you're, this does not guarantee entry. But it's that you can understand why there would be consternation over that. And then, of course, with our Iraqi allies, they they said, "Look, this is a problem for us, and we can't have Iraqi generals who are in, in, in critical a critical part of the war against the Islamic State in Iraq, which is now in Iraq. I mean, which is going on right now in Iraq and in Syria, of course." Uh, you can't have them stuck in transit and not able to come to the country. This is an issue. So the Iraqis said, okay, well, what do we need to do to make this better, by the way? And they fixed it. And now we're happy. And now they're off the, now they're off the list of the countries. Now, just so we're on the same page here, the countries that are left on the revised executive order that Trump put out are Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. It's a 90-day temporary, you could call it a stay, to borrow judicial terminology, a stay on entry for people from those countries. Um, Unlike unlike the previous executive order, uh, this executive order does not refer to an individual's religious status, whether minority or otherwise, in any capacity. There is no mention of religion. This is a nation-state specific temporary you could call it a temporary uh, a temporary travel ban. There we go. A temporary travel ban. That would be a much than just calling it a travel ban. It is temporary. It is for 90 days. And as we were discussing with James Carafano yesterday from the Heritage Foundation, you got a new administration that comes in. Look at what happened. Just stay with me here for a second. Look what happened with the Bush administration. Come into office. Al-Qaeda has already been planning for years to hit us with a mass casualty, catastrophic attack. Bush administration comes in and it's it's now on Bush's watch that 9/11 happens. And when you try to say, well hold on a second, Clinton could have Clinton could have done more, Clinton could have taken out Osama bin Laden, Clinton could have taken the declaration of war, the actual declaration of war from Al Qaeda when it was in Afghanistan and before that in the Sudan against the United States. Uh, more seriously, and also, of course, the bombing of the USS Cole and the bombings of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, that there could have been a bigger response than firing a few missiles and maybe even firing a missile the day of the grand jury convening on the Monica Lewinsky trial, firing some missiles at a pharmaceutical factory in the Sudan. Bill Clinton did that. Check it out online. You'll see what I mean. Interesting timing. Uh, But it, it happened on Bush's watch. Trump administration comes in, they know after all the talk on we're going to take the fight to Islamic radicals, we're not going to let them, uh, we're not going to dance around who the threat comes from and what the problem is, and we're going to take a hard line against them. And then if they get hit in the first 90 days, no one's going to say, oh, well, they're just getting, you know, they're getting their sea legs under themselves. This is They're getting used to the job. No, it'll be this happened on Trump's watch. So they view this as a vulnerability. It has been a vulnerability immigrants or refugees using the refugee pipeline from the Middle East and North Africa into Europe that has been used for mass casualty attacks. They're trying to stop this. So they say, look, give us 90 days to review these procedures. It also, by the way, puts pressure on these countries to play ball, meaning that they need to develop procedures that make us comfortable with individuals from those countries coming here. In the executive order, this revised executive order, it even specifically states cases of those who were, came here as uh, refugees who then went on to plot mass casualty terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. That is in the order that previously they said, well, this, w- this wouldn't do anything because refugees are never a threat. Really? We've got a few that are serving 40 years to life or life sentences because of their plots to attack the country that had taken them in, this country. Uh, So that's all necessary background to what happens here with this judge who has decided to create a right to immigrate to this country. One of the biggest problems, and this is an issue because it gets into the legalese, and what does standing really mean? It doesn't resonate with people. To give someone standing to sue in court, why does that matter so much here? In this case, the the state of Hawaii has raised this issue, saying that it will hurt, as I said before, as I said yesterday and when this initially came up, it will hurt their school system and tourism. Uh, by the way, there are a total of 23 graduate students that come from all six of those countries in the Hawaii school system. So because Hawaii thinks that those 23 students will be inconvenienced by this, They're overruling the commander-in-chief on on an issue of national security because of uh, the economic impact and reputational impact of the school system from having 23 graduate students that are not able to, for 90 days, travel to the United States. Uh, But even more than whether the impact on Hawaii or not is is a real thing, you have an individual who has brought, along with this, um, a Muslim-American who brought suit here and was granted standing because i believe it's his mother-in-law from syria would have difficulty coming here under this uh executive order and so that is the harm that he that he states now keep in mind in the executive order it says on a case-by-case basis we you can get a waiver didn't even try to get the waiver and under legal reasoning forget about whether we like or don't like something, legal reasoning here is you have to exhaust all measures. Before the federal court is going to grant a stay of a presidential executive order, you would think that they would make the petitioners go through all the necessary channels first to see if they can remedy this. In this case, uh, the individual who brought this uh, who brought this suit was uh, Dr. El Sheik. That's his name. Um, he didn't go through that process to see if he could get a waiver he just wanted to bring the suit right away but it gets even so the issue of standing so now you have a non-citizen this guy's mother-in-law in in syria non-citizen has a right to come to this country that is what this federal judge is saying there's no way around it or you at least have a right to challenge your uh being kept out of the country but uh, now now we're starting to split the difference pretty thin here uh uh, you have a right. Anyone anywhere in the world can show up in a federal court and say, I have a right to be in America and make their case and not just be told from the outset, actually, no, you don't. As I said before, at the very start of the show on the budget, even when liberals win, Trump and the administration that he is running right now, he forces them to step out and defend things that whether they win on this specific issue or not, the American people get to see what they really believe in and what they really want. You see what the Democratic Party, what the progressive left stands for on this and on other issues as well. It's very instructive. Uh, But then the worst part of this is uh, not just that there's this this right created out of thin air for non-citizens to challenge their ability to come to America or not in a federal court, as if we don't have enough to do with the courts, and they're not backlogged enough as it is. Uh, But also, this judge doubles down on the previously deeply flawed jurisprudence that the statements that somebody makes that have nothing to do with the text of an executive order that is is binding, that the executive branch has the legal authority to implement, that what somebody says in a different setting at a different time, whether during a campaign or whenever— can override the plain text on the page of what the order is. Simple way of putting this is, the judge says Trump doesn't like Muslims. Therefore, anything that he does, anything that the president of the United States does uh, that affects Muslims is null and void. This is nullification. This is a federal judge saying, sorry, Donald Trump is an Islamophobe, uh, Islamophobe and a bigot. Therefore, I don't care that he's commander-in-chief. This affects Muslims. We know he doesn't like Muslims because of stuff that he says. And so I'm going to, as a federal judge, one of many, take power out of the commander-in-chief's hands on an issue that is explicitly handed to the commander-in-chief by legislation as well as by constitutional separation of powers. This is a legal atrocity. I don't know how, how better to put it than that. This is the equivalent of a judicial opinion that is a train wreck into a toxic waste dump with a nuclear weapon dropped on top of it. I mean, this is a mess. And liberals are applauding it. The left is saying, yeah, this is great. Because for them, the last line of defense is progressive judges who will just create a constitutional crisis, and they are going to do this, by the way, because they're going to keep having federal judges—shocking, isn't it? The Ninth Circuit, packed with Obama appointees, all these federal judges are trying to stop this White House and this duly elected president and his administration from enacting the policies that the voters put them in office to enact. There's even a section of this opinion where the judge gets into hurt feelings and how Hawaii has a right to protect people from feelings of discrimination— No, Hawaii does not have a right to protect hurt feelings. And this needs to be taken all the way up to the top. Unfortunately, it'll take time. And if Gorsuch is in place, this will be overturned. This is Donald Trump's right. This is a decision that he is allowed to make as president. And these federal judges are just acting like little petty dictators. We're going to hit a break here, team. We'll be back right after. All right. Welcome back, team. Uh, very pleased to introduce you all to Joe Simonson. He is a reporter at Heat Street and has the amazing distinction of being the first and only ever intern on the Buck Sexton radio show. <laughs> Joe, great to have you. I'm pretty sure they put us together back at the blaze because we both were wearing we were wearing identical boat shoes, which I figured, you know, it worked out. That and really good hair. That Hey, I'm not going to argue with you there, buddy. So tell me about the, your latest over at Heat Street
8: yeah, sure. So uh, one of the last things i uh, I wrote was a was an op ed about the upcoming um, battle over the budget. We're kind of entering phase one where uh, we have to pass a discretionary uh, domestic spending bill by I think April fifteenth or something, or the government shuts down. So remember the government shut down in uh, you know twenty thirteen? Democrats are now pulling the same thing. If you don't give us what we want, we're going to shut it down. Difference is, obviously, is that they don't have control of the House, don't have control of the Senate. Um, they're basically saying, give us everything, or no one gets anything.
4: And we had Congressman Mo Brooks on before. I don't know if you heard the show. Just say that you did. That's always whenever you're on with the host, just <laughs> pretend like you were course, listening, yeah. even if you weren't. Uh, <laughs> but we had Mo Brooks on, and he said that he believes— the Democrats might be willing to go to the mat and shut down the government solely over the issue of a, of some funding to start construction of a border fence, border wall at our southern border.
8: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I would go even as far as to say they'll shut down the government if there's any cut to uh, National Endowment of the Arts, for example. I mean, they will not give an inch to the Republicans despite not having a majority anywhere. I mean, this is the... These are just not very important programs, and like I said, I mean, they're willing to go totally nuclear on it.
4: And your expectations for what the Republicans will do on this are what, uh, are what Joe? <sighs>
8: you know, I, I, it's hard to say. Um, obviously, Republicans are very confident right now. Um, you know, it, it, it's pretty hard to believe that the Democrats aren't willing to give up cuts to anything, um unfortunately i anticipate uh i do anticipate probably government shutdown and you know another two weeks of federal workers being furloughed and then probably just a you know a spending bill
4: to keep the lights on with no cuts i mean i just we've we've kind of played this out before and who gets blamed for that shutdown if it happens democrats or republicans
6: well you know the media
8: always says it's the republicans the democrats always said it's the republicans and back in 2013 um, you know, the whole narrative was oh the Republicans of the government get shut down, blah blah blah, and then what happened in twenty fourteen? Well, they another wave election and they took control of the Senate.
4: I hear you man. All right, Joe Simonson at Heat Street. He's a reporter there. Latest on HeatStreet.com and just tell us Joe what's your next piece or what are you what are you gonna be reporting on the next few days?
8: Uh, we'll be definitely covering uh, the immig- uh, what you're just talking about, we'll be probably having an opinion piece on um, how Democrats are relying on liberal judges uh, to
4: get their policy done on you immigration. You were listening to the show. Good man. <laughs> Thank you, Buck. Yes, indeed. All right, Joe Simonson of Heat Street, everybody check out his latest. And Joe, great to have you, man. Thank you so much for calling in. Great, no problem. Thanks, Buck. Uh, let's get Victor in Georgia, WMCD. Welcome to the Freedom Hub, my friend. <laughs>
9: sir, how you doing today? I'm Thanks good, for sir. my call. Thank you. I want to see what your hit was on the South China Sea islands China's building.
4: Oh, you're talking about the uh, expansion of some, I believe there are uh, uh, little coral islands, very very tiny though. There's a, a reclamation going, a reclamation project to expand what are uninhabited, very tiny specks in the ocean into substantial enough pieces of dry land to build naval, ba- uh, to build a na- naval bases, to build airfields. Uh, th- this is part of, Ch- look, China views the South China Sea as an absolutely essential part of its plan to go from being a regional power to more of a hemispheric and eventually global power. And controlling that waterway is, it, it, it believes part of its so it's sovereignty and it's trying to expand and project its authority beyond its shores. And it sees what the U.S. says. I mean, look, they point to us. They say, well, you guys, you know, Guam isn't exactly a part of California. I mean, you've taken never mind Hawaii. Uh, you know, you, you've taken some pieces of land here and there and you project force from them. We're going to do the same thing. This, of course, uh, creates tensions with neighbors like the Philippines, uh, Japan. Uh, all of all of its southeast asian neighbors really uh, as well as korea so there there's going to be increased tension there but what are we going to you know if the chinese are building out there what are we really going to do i mean we're, we're not we're not about to uh, engage in any military hostilities over it so they view this as a means to create l- create a literal reality on the ground and then the perception of a power change will follow there you go rock and roll victor great to have you man thank you very much for calling in on wmcd uh wow we're already at the third hour of the show we got this is a great transition question actually on south china sea because we're going to talk some national security coming up here uh i'm a former cia analyst so i like to get uh go deep dive on the national security issues whenever i can we'll talk about the latest with trump surveillance the New information about where that stands. Was there or was there not a wiretap or electronic surveillance of Trump Tower? We've got some stuff for you on that, including a whole bunch of other things. You're going to want to stay and hang around and see what we got. Back right after the break.
3: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844 844-900- 900 2825.
4: our team welcome back uh we are joined now by the wonderful sarah carter she is an award-winning national security and war correspondent she reports for circa news sarah so great to have you on thanks for coming on the new show
1: uh, it's so great to be here buck thank you so much
4: all right so sarah we've got a few different uh i, I want to have you weigh in with all the latest here we've got a few different versions of what's going on with the with the allegation about wiretapping and Trump and the Russia collusion. But first, you've got Paul Ryan out there saying we see no evidence of the tap. Play clip 57
8: This is something I wasn't unaware of until we did see a few press reports on this. But the point is uh, the intelligence committees in their continuing, widening, ongoing investigation of all things Russia uh, got to the bottom, at least so far, with respect to our intelligence community that, that no such wiretap existed.
4: And then we've got Sean Spicer today during the press conference defending the president's claims. 52.
8: Are you saying
2: that the president still stands by his allegation that President Obama ordered wiretapping or surveillance of Trump Tower, despite the fact that the Senate Intelligence Committee says they see no That's, indication but, that it happened? Does the president still stand no, by he, the first allegation? First of all, he stands by it. But again, you're mischaracterizing what happened today. No, the they, Senate. They no, no. I know, I know. Right no, the, exactly the, the, no. I understand that, and the. the At the same time they acknowledge that they have not been in contact with the Department of Justice so but again I go back to what I said at the beginning it's interesting hold on hold on it's interesting how at the same time where were you coming to the defense of that same Intelligence Committee and those members when they said there was no connection to Russia you didn't seem to report it then
4: all right Sarah things getting a little tense there you're one of the absolute best national security investigative reporters in the business What is true here about all this? Where are we with the wiretapping? And then we'll get into the Russia collusion allegations. But on the wiretaps, what's true, what's not?
1: I think what we can say from this, Buck, is what's true is that if you're taking the word, and just like Nunez said, literally, they're saying there was no wiretapping. That means penetration of his telephone line, uh, the old-fashioned way, you know, or going straight in and listening to his phone calls. That's what we're hearing from everyone. But— I think what we're looking at also is a broader scope of what the president is talking about. And the president, uh, along with Sean Spicer, are saying, wait a minute, we need to wait for a full investigation. We just don't know if, for example, somebody – uh, looked at those, you know, those phone calls, if they've seen like what we saw with Mike Flynn, you know, if names were unmasked, if they were able to peer into what was happening inside the campaign. And I think that that's where everything is going. That's the direction that the president's going. You know, a lot of people say he just needs to walk back on those words wiretapped um, and, and end this right here and now. I mean, there's a lot of people that are giving him that advice. Um, But but they're sticking to their guns and saying, wait, we want to see what's happening in the bigger, broader sense. What happened in 2016, and how far extended was that? Was it just Mike Flynn's phone call? Was it just that email, uh, you know, those those telephone calls between the Russian ambassador, or was there more there? How much did they see? And this is the reason why Nunes, uh, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, has called on this investigation and is asking those very same questions.
4: Sarah, it would seem to me that there are a couple of possibilities at this stage. Uh, one is that uh, President Trump... Uh, could ask, could ask the various agencies, whether the intelligence community or the uh, intelligence community, which ki- which includes Russia, I mean, uh, sorry, includes FBI, FBI uh, and the DOJ directly. Uh, he could ask them directly about this, and and was there an investigation open on Russia and the wiretapping and all of this? But then maybe he would be accused, and I believe this is the White House's position that he would be accused of of meddling in some way. But I'm not sure that that really. I don't know if that holds up or not. It would seem to me that he's the commander-in-chief. He could ask for any executive branch information that he wants. But that's one scenario. The other one is that there needs to be an investigation because whatever information Trump is trying to find here, if there was a counterintelligence investigation of Trump and his associates and it was not known by, let's say, D.N.I. Clapper, um, by uh, Loretta Lynch at the head of the DOJ and other senior figures, if this was some rogue element within the government, that wouldn't be readily available information, even if the president asked for it. Uh, do you see, Are those are those two scenarios as you see it now, too, or is, am I missing? And of course, the third option is there's I just nothing. There's just nothing, and we're not going to find anything. And this is all uh, a lot of smoke <laughs> and no fire with regard to Russia stuff. But how does this play out?
1: Oh, I don't think you're missing anything here. I think you brought up three very good points. I mean, this is what I know from our sources, and this is what we've been discussing and writing about at Circa News um, for the past several weeks. We know that there was a FISA taken out in October. It did not focus on Trump. It was an overall FISA. These are ongoing FISAs as well in the intelligence community, monitoring Russians. They go all the way back to Robert Hansen and the espionage case. We also know that the FBI looked into a computer server uh, that was registered to Trump Tower when there were reports, and it started coming out in the media, that there were pings between Trump's computer server, uh, the one registered to Trump Tower, and the Alpha Bank in Russia. Now, those pings were going back and forth, and when the FBI looked into it, their investigation was less than two weeks, and they found nothing. In fact, those pings contained no data, so they shut that investigation. That did not require a FISA. And it was actually a traditional FBI investigation into that. What we've uncovered today and it's up on our website was that Alpha is now asking the Justice Department they've been hacked again. See, back then, they just thought these were these marketing pings. They weren't sure what it was, but they basically put a watchdog inside their computer so that if it happened again, uh, they would be able to track it back. And what happened was Alpha um, sources with Alpha Bank cybersecurity experts. Wait, can you tell everyone what's up. Alpha
4: and the, the tie in here, just for everyone listening so they can follow? So
1: the, the Al- Alpha Bank, Alpha Bank is a Russian bank. It goes all the way up to Vladimir Putin. So when these pings were going back and forth between Trump server last october and and the alpha bank the fbi began an investigation into it when they went into the uh, server and they looked at it now they didn't take a fisa apparently this was a traditional investigation without a warrant when they looked at that data they said well there's no I mean, when they looked at those pings they said there's no data here there's nothing going back and forth so they dismissed it and closed the case now what we've discovered from sources with alpha bank the the cybersecurity experts they have been hacked three times twice this month and once last month in february when they traced the hacking it came back to a server in the united states they believe that it was intentionally done in order to make it look like the trump server and the alpha bank server were talking to each other and they've actually come to the justice department they've actually asked just today, the Justice Department to begin investigating this, and they they said they would fully cooperate and turn over all of their evidence. This is incredible. You're looking at a Russian bank that's connected to many oligarchs that has a lot of things going on on the backside, saying to the United States Justice Department, we're going to hand over all this evidence. Could you please help us track the server and the people that are making it look like we're in communication with Trump because we never have been. So so the so allegation
4: can- here, Sarah, would be that there's this Russian bank, a computer tied to a Russian bank, a, a server in Russia, uh, has been communicating with Trump or a Trump server. But really, there's now an allegation of a third party actor that is trying to create the impression of communication where and there the was election. none. Is that is that where this is? That's
1: absolutely true. And that's exactly what they're alleging. And that's exactly what's going to be investigated. So that opens up a whole new can of worms, right? I mean, we're looking at all kinds of issues here. Somebody described it to me today as like an episode of Homeland, you know, where is this all going to end? And I think that this is why, you know, the Intelligence Committee is investigating. This is why I have sources within the intelligence community that are saying, look, you know, These reports out in the media are making us look like we're all out to get President Trump, and we're not. I mean, this is out of control. And the fact that Flynn's name was leaked on a very classified document, you know, something that should have never come out, it's a felony. And there's a very narrow scope. And you know this well, Buck. There's a very narrow scope of people that would have had access to that, that would have signed off on that unmasking of his name. And I think this is why people are very concerned that there may be people within the government or there may be people with access to this information that we're politicizing it. And how dangerous is it when you politicize intelligence?
4: Sarah, when you talk to your sources inside the intelligence community, inside the IC, and and just more broadly speaking, that work in national security, uh, we are led to believe by the media, a- including some national security analysts that I know and on, on other issues I, I tend to find very sensible and reasonable, but we're led to believe that there is a consensus Among uh, many, uh, I mean, a consensus of how many, I don't know, but a consensus within uh, national security circles that there was something nefarious going on between Trump and Russia, your people that you talk to. I know and now I'm asking just for their analysis, their gut, their sense of things. Do they think that's true or are we just being led to believe by some media outlets that there is this broad perception in the IC that something must have been going on here?
1: Well, let me tell you, they they absolutely do not believe, and they do not have any evidence or anything pointing to any criminality between President Trump and the Trump team uh, and the Russians, particularly with last year and with the the Russian hacking. uh, There is nothing that they found, and I've spoken to many officials, senior officials, about this, and this is what's so interesting is that this narrative still exists and it's still being pushed out there. You saw that former acting director Mike Morrell also made that same statement. I mean, we put out our story over a week ago, and just a couple of days ago, um, former acting director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, said the same thing. There doesn't appear to be any evidence of this. We, I've also seen a number yeah, he, of- I'm sorry, of just so
4: everyone here's The former CIA director, who is, by the way, very close to the Clinton team and is, and from, all, from everything I can see is a Democrat, has come out and said- there is zero evidence of collusion between Russia and Trump to this day. Nothing, not a single data point.
1: Absolutely. And he is a very close ally of Hillary Clinton. So if you would have thought anybody would have come out and tried to make that illusion real, I mean, if, if he really wanted to or if there was really something there, he would, he would actually say it. Um, so this is what's so interesting about what's happening here. We're, we're seeing a number of media uh, reports out there that keep – hinting and keep reaching and keep stretching to find this evidence. It's all hearsay. It's um, conspiracy theories. And there is actually, and that's what I'm looking for. If there is evidence out there, I would be more than happy to report on it. There just isn't any evidence to date of any collusion between the Trump campaign and the Trump team and Russia. There is nothing there to date
4: could all now, this could all this and this is we're going to run into a break here soon sarah so i need to just leave this as a last question with you we're speaking to sarah carter by the way and sarah where where can everyone go to read your your latest uh, reporting It's circa
1: well yeah they can go to circa.com or follow me on twitter at sarah carter dc
4: one more for you sarah before we let you go is it your impression from what you're hearing and everything that's being talked about inside uh national security circles right now that the people talk about the deep state and I've been saying, look, the deep state maybe exists, but in the sense that people need to understand that it, it might be a handful of people. It's not entire institutions that have turned against Trump and are actively trying to subvert the presidency. It may be some people in a few institutions, whether DOJ, CIA, who knows. Is it your impression that it's a very small group or is this maybe a more widespread problem that might be involved in, say, the Flynn leak or other actual illegal activity meant to subvert the trump administration
1: i i i tend to agree with you i think it's a very small group but a very significant group um and i think that that's what an investigation hopefully um the house intelligence committee hopefully also the inspector general of the doj will whittle it down to Um, for sure there are fingerprints whoever leaked uh, the conversation between Lieutenant General uh, Michael Flynn, the former um, National Security Advisor for President Trump, whoever leaked that information, their fingerprints are out there, and somebody is going to find out. I mean, this is not going to be uh, a closely guarded secret. Uh, there, uh, According to David Ignatius, who wrote the story in the Washington Post, it was a senior U.S. official, and I'll just leave it at that. But I believe that, you know, like anything, there are markers out there. People can't just – Look so you think the leaker You think the
4: leaker may be found. I, 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 Well, that will be very interesting and see if they actually were willing to press charges. Sarah, we got to leave it there. But Sarah Carter, everybody, you should follow her on Twitter at SarahCarterDC. Sarah, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Buck. It's great talking to great you Great talking again. to you, too. All right, team, uh, hitting a break. Be right back. Team Buck phones are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. If you want to chat, love to have you. Join me here in the Freedom Hut Live, and we have Larry in Ohio on WMAN. What's up, Larry?
9: Hello, Buck. Uh, I'd like to make just a quick comment on your last call-in before I get to my main point. I'll call it a peninsula that China's building in the South China Sea. they are going to Taiwan. They've always claimed Taiwan was part of China to start with. That's where the yeah.
4: We we still we still say we accept their one China policy, which is kind of vague. But to the Chinese, it means Taiwan is theirs.
9: There you go. And who's going to stop them? I don't know. Now, the main question is, Buck. I assume you have an automobile.
4: Uh, actually, I don't, because I live in New York City. <laughs> but but I have in the past. I'm sorry. That's okay. No, it's an <laughs> assumption you're allowed to make. Pardon me. I said that's an assumption that you're allowed to make. Go ahead, Larry. All right.
9: I assume you own you own a house. <laughs>
4: no, I'm like I'm like a vagrant, Larry. I live in New York City. I move from apartment to apartment. It's very expensive here, uh, so I don't own a house. But I understand what you're going to say. For most people listening, they own a car and a house, and so let's Perfect. assume let's assume that I do for the purposes of discussion. But I just, I, I don't actually. I. I basically go around with like a, a a stick with a bag on it with all my belongings in it here in New York City. Go ahead.
9: What do you do? Walk over New York?
4: <laughs> Pretty much, man. Just okay. just go from one place that has good tequila to the next and hope that you know. See where the wind takes me. It's uh, you basically in New York City they raise the rents on you so quickly after one year. Anyway, I, I'm going down the rabbit hole here, Larry. What's your point about insurance?
9: Boy, most people have uh, own an automobile. They have automobile insurance. Most people have a home. They have uh, a homeowners insurance. Mm-hmm. Government didn't tell them which company they had to go to, and how much coverage they had to have. In Ohio, you got to have I don't know comprehensive minimum or collision minimum insurance. Yeah, of course. My point. My point is, when in the hell did the government, U.S. government, get into the healthcare business? Was it Medicare, Medicaid?
4: Well, that was the that was part that was part of it for sure, and it's a and it's a huge part of uh, of healthcare spending as it is. And I, I think the the point you're making about insurance, by the way, this is. This was oftentimes put forward by the, the Democrats as as a means of saying, well, you know, you have to buy insurance if you have a car. Now, you don't have to buy insurance if you have a home, as I understand it. Maybe you need it for a bank, for a mortgage, for a certificate of occupancy, for a C, a C uh, what is it, a CO. But uh, and I don't, I don't have a home. I mean, I don't have a home, so I don't know these things. But um, the uh, the, the, di- the difference is you know, if you don't buy fire insurance and your house burns down, you don't have a house anymore, and that's you know it stinks for you, right? Uh, if you if you don't have car, I mean, for with cars, uh, they make you buy insurance. But people would say, well, uh, you don't have to drive, you don't have to own a car. Whereas with health care, you are forced uh, into the market to buy a private product. So the real analogy would be to say that the government mandates that you. Buy a car and buy insurance for the car, right? because you're you're uh, you're not you don't have the option of not playing ball. And I have to say that the the problem, this is why I keep hammering home, Larry, that what we're talking about is not health insurance. We're talking about health care. We're talking about how the government mandates and subsidizes via taxpayer dollars health care for different groups at different times for political reasons. This is cost shifting. This is government control of, yes, prices and services and the marketplace. Uh, and that's not that's never going to result in good outcomes. Uh, but I wanted to give you a last word here before we head into a break. Go ahead, Larry.
9: Well, the one thing I don't understand is why is the government uh, controlling our health care and they don't car insurance, life insurance, house insurance, and so forth? Why do they stick their nose into our health care?
4: Uh, because the health, health, just like with the environment and environmental, uh, and Larry, thanks for calling in uh, with the, with the environment. Uh, health care is an opportunity to control so much more than just health care, right? I mean, healthcare care has enormous economic impacts. It is a means of achieving political control and even political dominance. Uh, everybody is, is concerned about healthcare. Everybody has to deal with healthcare and its costs. And the more government control, the more control government has of healthcare, ultimately, the more control government has of you. That is the answer. Back in a few.
3: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are home. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles, shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. You
4: know, President uh, Trump last night was in Nashville. Uh, I watched the rally, and it was a reminder of, of how he won how he won this election against Hillary Clinton that, so many of my fellow conservatives in the media uh, we did not think was going to happen. Uh, he's incredibly engaging. He understands the the mood of the crowd. He understands how to connect with them. He speaks to them in their language, and by that I don't mean English, obviously, because, of course, he's speaking English, uh, but I mean that he uses words. He, he speaks in everyday parlance. He has a, an ability to speak though as a politician, and this shouldn't be such a, a strange and, and rare thing, uh he has an ability to speak the way that normal people speak. And that resonates for very obvious reasons. He touched on a number of uh issues. Well, first actually we have this this uh fan of his in Tennessee who's raving about the visit. Is that we have that? let's let's play that. Clip forty
1: eight well,
0: Showed our, his support for us and we showed our support for him.
2: This is some crowd, you have to see what's outside, you wouldn't even believe it. We were
1: in line for one o'clock and it was well worth it. It was a wonderful event. We wanted
3: to see Sir Donald Trump. I mean, he's the President he's of the United States. How can you not want to?
5: be here to see him. This is
1: this the first time you've seen a president of the United States in person? We, we, yes, ma'am. Whoa. What do you think? Super cool. Super cool. What do you, what do you like about President Trump? Repeal and replace Obamacare. That's my favorite thing that he's doing.
7: For him to redo the Obamacare, that did give me some hope. I had two autistic children, so I would love to see change.
1: My brother's a U.S. Marine, and he supports our military and respects him so much that it's just, I know my brother's proud that he's our commander in chief. Do you want to be here?
4: I just, as a
9: veteran, I just wanted to see the president of the United States. When he was elected for me, it was just the most amazing thing I've
0: ever seen. It was just, he's very passionate about it, what, what we go through, what our spouses
8: go through. You know, it's, it's refreshing to see.
4: I play that for you because uh, I think it's important to take a moment to step back and re- remind ourselves that while what we see from the media is a, a blinding hatred, really, for this president, and they like to create the perception that everyone everywhere just thinks that he's a bigot, that he's an Islamophobe, a misogynist. He's going the line a racist. Go down the line. Every ist, every ism they say he is guilty of. And uh, there is no amount of hyperbole, uh, exaggeration or, or outright falsehood uh, that is too much for the media to bear if it is damaging to Trump. I mean, they will... Whatever they can say and get away with, even if it's only for a day, they will do. So I think it's important to keep in mind that he beat Hillary Clinton. There are a lot of people, many, many millions of them, many tens of millions in this country who think that Donald Trump... And They're not sitting around saying that he is who they want their children to grow up and emulate in every way. Maybe some of them are, but I don't know. What they want, though, is the implementation of policies of an agenda to take the platform on which Trump ran and to make that into a reality in this country. And I think the opposition to him, the fierce nature of the opposition is to be expected. And as we go forth here, we also are reminded of that, that there is no way to uh, undo the damage of eight years of Obama without running directly into some of these minefields. Uh, there was no way that we were going to push back against Obamaism, which is just a shorthand for democratic left-wing progressivism, which is the now the principal ideology of the Democrat Party. Uh, there's no way you're going to do that without coming up against a buzzsaw at some point, without facing... The most uh, fierce criticism and all this intransigence we're seeing from the bureaucracy and these uh, federal judges whom you could. By the way, I I like to also (laughs) a lot of reminders here. I like to point out that when we were talking about Harry Reid before and the nuclear option, that was very smart for the Democrats. Uh, What they did was create the this leave behind effect of all these different federal judges that were just. Able to get them through quickly, and the more progressive, the more left wing, the more pro-statism, the better. And and that is one of the most people say. Oh, if Obamacare is repealed and Trump undoes a lot of executive orders and regulations, it's like the Obama administration will have been erased. Well, in part, uh, from a policy perspective, sure, but the the transformation of the federal judiciary is going to be with us for a long time some are finally starting to say that they may consider you know, articles of impeachment for some of these federal judges you know that that could turn into a very interesting conversation quite quickly uh, are we are we now because we have this idea not only can judges of course democrats will say not judges can't be criticized and they they serve you know this is a lifetime appointment they serve for life well Obviously, there are circumstances under which a federal judge could be removed from the bench, and this has happened in the past. Um, And if members of Congress take it upon themselves to enforce, well, enforce the law in the sense that they believe there is a law and there is a constitution that judges have to try to make a good faith effort to adhere to both of those, uh, maybe there will be some federal judges that have to be removed from office. That's a discussion that I think we'll have to continue to revisit, but this is all turning into an argument over the control of the, the control that the state has of your life day to day, and there is no genteel, uh, moderate, uh, halfway approach to pushing back against the state. It has had decades now of largely unopposed encroachment into all of our lives. The federal government is spending more money than ever before. It's taking in more in taxes than ever before. You have how many millions of people that uh, work for government at different levels across the country. And you see, even with the most minor—I mean, today, uh, the people are upset because— They're going to cut back on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, if Trump has his way. $445 million. $445 million for the court? We we don't need media is already a a hyper-competitive space. We don't need a Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We don't need $445 million going—that's crazy. But that gets them upset. National Endowment for the Arts, $148 million uh, that Trump would like to stop giving to them uh taxpayer dollars of course national endowment for the humanities 148 million dollars uh overseas private investment corporation 62 million dollars u.s institute of peace 35 million dollars uh woodrow wilson center uh for scholars 10.5 million dollars they're taking money out of your pocket so that they can fund these organizations where where is where does the federal government stop if they can do that what else can they give money to and remember, it's more than just the dollars and cents, although that matters too, especially when you get up into the hundreds of millions of dollars. this is These are substantial outlays in any world other than federal government budgeting, where unless it has... Now we're already at a point where billions are kind of meh. You know, hundreds of millions is like a rounding error. Billions are meh. And once you get to a trillion, people pay attention. Uh, that should show us all, I think, without even much more analysis, how dire the situation has really become. Um, but the fight that trump is up against right now is over the control of the state and to push back on that he's going to have to take some cuts at the state he's going to have to do what he said he would do today and the congress the republicans in congress must go along with this if it's going to have any real impact Um, but the state's going to fight back and you see this with the judges i think you'll see it more with the bureaucracy uh here's by the way i wanted to play this through this is what trump had to say last night at that rally in nashville Uh, about the judge in Hawaii's stay on the temporary travel ban for six countries. Play clip 47.
2: This is, in the opinion of many, an unprecedented judicial overreach. If he thinks there's danger out there, he or she, whoever is president, can say, I'm sorry, folks. Not now. Please. we got enough problems. The danger is clear. The law is clear. The need for my executive order is clear. And I will not stop fighting for the safety of you and your families. Believe me, not today, not ever. We're going to take our case as far as it needs to go, including all the way up to the Supreme Court. We're going to win. We're going to keep our citizens safe.
4: So he's not going to give up on this one. This executive order, uh, I, I believe, will win, on, on, if, if not on appeal, which it probably won't because it's Ninth Circuit. But uh, if it makes its way up to the Supreme Court, it will win. But by that point, how many months will have already been lost here? Uh, how long can they put a delay into the system? This is about national security. And you've got a judge in Hawaii writing about how it's really supposed to be, first and foremost, about feelings and about the school system wanting some students from some faraway countries that are not U.S. citizens. Um, The reality here is that judges view themselves as, as I've said, the last line of defense against the Trump agenda, Um, but the status mentality that is so pervasive within the Democratic Party, and also with many of these federal judges, is present in the very bureaucracy itself, and by beginning to rattle their cage a little bit by beginning to show them that it's not permanent, that they can't just assume that all funding, that all powers that have been given to them in the past by Democrats will stay, uh, we are at least showing a willingness to push back on the uh, the federal government's encroachment into our day-to-day lives. This is the central philosophical question, uh, really the central philosophical debate uh, within western civilization right now uh, the role the size and scope and the role of the state in your life once you get beyond western civilization we have some other competing ideologies and uh, orthodoxies and issues to tackle but inside of the west uh, america our close allies european countries the size and role of the state is the fundamental question right now of politics right how much can they do how much should they do for you how much can they do for you And we are the exception. We are the country that says that the individual should be making vast majority of decisions and that all rights really come from individual rights. A collectivist mentality, which used to be pervasive under the uh, aegis of communism, and now it's Democrat socialism in Europe, and it's worth reminding everybody that in this country, it's just the Democrat Party. And... I think we've seen in recent years, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, that the size and scope of the government is something that they think is not nearly enough. It needs to be more. It needs to be a stronger force. And uh, they want to be in control of even more. This can have disastrous consequences. Um, And when you see Trump pushing back against all of this now, of course they hate him. Not only that, do those hate him that directly benefit from this. I, I mentioned that quote about Mulvaney telling a bunch of reporters that want more money for D.C. or the D.C. area, you know, I don't care about the, the price of your condo or that's not that Trump doesn't care with his budget about the price of your condo in D.C. The fact that some of the wealthiest counties, m- many of the wealthiest counties in the top 10 for the whole country are right around, I mean, adjacent to Washington, D.C., should alarm people and upset us much more than it does. I mean, the business of D.C. is politics. It should not be a very lucrative business. It should be a limited and only what is necessary business. But the Democratic Party has a lot of interests aligned in it that don't want to see that become so. They don't want to see that as the reality. Um, So we can expect this to be a long and difficult and nasty fight. And we are only in the first, oh, two months of it right now. Um, And this... The the executive order of or the fight over the budget, and this is going to extend beyond all of it, because at the end of the day, you have a Democrat Party that is, first and foremost, the party of the state. That's what it offers people. Give up your rights, give up your freedom, give up control, give it to us, and we'll make everything better, and we'll make your pain go away. It is the most dangerous lie that governments have told their citizens in certainly the West— over the last oh, 100 plus years or so. We'll be back in a few. Sometimes it's a useful exercise to look at how central planning has gone wrong elsewhere as a reminder here of just how bad things can be. Uh, central planning, I, a, a government that is making decisions, particularly about the economy, but of course, the economy and the rest of your life is not really something you can separate when it comes to government. If the government's making economic decisions, it's going to be either de facto or uh, de jure. In reality, uh, making decisions about everything, just give it time. Uh, but central planning can take a, an, a country that should by all, uh, by all means be well off. Uh, it can take a country like Venezuela that right now is having shortages of food, uh, st- staples in the individual diet in Venezuela, milk, flour, Shortages in those things. And of course, the government is blaming bakeries, uh, by the way, for not making enough bread at the prescribed price. You see, this is the government never learns a lesson from bad government policy. It's always someone else's fault. Once the government's taken all authority into its own hands, and this would be true of any country, the bad things that happen, you think the government says, yeah, we made a mistake, sorry, we'll, we'll take less authority. We'll, we'll let more, we'll let more fr- uh, free market reforms just, just sort of happen. That's not how it goes. You need a new government usually to come in and do that. Um, And good luck with that. Oftentimes, it's not the case. You've got unemployment skyrocketing, tons of violent crime. Uh, As I said, running out of milk, running out of flour. Uh, There are yes, there are bread lines, because when the government says that it's just a matter of social justice, that bread should cost X, but in reality, bread costs Y, you run into problems. And when the government makes bad decisions and then just turns around and says that, well, it's some foreign entity, in the case of Venezuela, they often blame America, or it's greedy bankers or greedy industrialists. Um, I will never forget sitting out and speaking to a, a Venezuelan who said that he found out that his family's assets had been seized— Um, And he decided to flee the country at this point because the uh, Venezuelan premier was on TV announcing it on a TV show, like a a sit down and talk show. Uh, He said, yeah, I I figured that was a good time to go. Um, But this all started with, and we have to keep this in mind, this all started with social justice. This all started with health care that was affordable, uh, food that was affordable, housing that was affordable, housing for all, land for all, better better, uh, disbursement of the goods produced in society, and the state makes that allocation. Well, it is with that power, that power to centrally plan economic activity, that a place like Venezuela that has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, larger than Saudi Arabia, in fact. I mean, Venezuela is sitting on a giant ATM machine full of cash in the form of oil, but it can't even refine enough of its oil anymore. And oil prices have dropped substantially, as you know, in, in the last, oh, well, decade or so. Uh, and so they have what now? Oh, they've got a dictatorial regime that's doing military exercises to distract people from the breadlines they're standing in. This is a country that should be, relatively speaking, well off, that has a huge head start on many other countries with its oil wealth. But because people in, in the government make decisions about what something should cost and what economic activity can be allowed, it is a disaster. Blackouts, incredible crime rate, unemployment all over the place. Don't look at what's going on there. Don't take a moment to see what's happening in Venezuela and think, oh, well, that could never that could never happen here. Promise you. You give Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and a bunch of others enough authority, they can make that happen here too. All right, team, we've got a lot more coming up tomorrow. Look forward to joining you then. Until then, Shields High.